Johnson, and Kyler's going to come up and read for us. And again, we'll, I'll tell you what these are in a minute. I mean, you'll, he's going to read it for us, but we'll, we'll get into it. Please, God, no more yelling. No more trips to the woodshed. Treat me nice for a change. I'm so starved for affection. Can't you see I'm black and blue, beat up badly in bones and soul? God, how long will it take for you to let up? Break in, God, and break up this fight. If you love me at all, get me out of here. I'm no good to you dead, am I? I can't sing in your choir if I'm buried in some tomb. I'm tired of all of this, so tired. My bed has been floating 40 days and night on the flood of my tears. My mattress is soaked, soggy with tears. The sockets of my eyes are black holes. Nearly blind, I squint and grope. Get out of here, you devil's crew. At last, God has heard my sobs. My requests have all been granted. My prayers are answered. Cowards, my enemies disappear. Disgraced, they turn tail and run. So, we get in on life forever with God in the same way we get on life with God here and now, by being vulnerable and needy before God and one another. Or to put it in more perhaps familiar language, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we've learned, hopefully, in the season leading up to Lent, is that it seems like the prerequisite for sharing life in God's life for a full and forever life, that is eternal life, is simply being in need. Having a hunger or thirst in life in need of satisfaction. Being lost and in need of being found and welcome. Being exposed, naked, and in need of covering and protection. Being ill and in need of care. Being imprisoned, isolated, and in need of presence. But if we're honest, such neediness is humbling. To be at the mercy of something outside of ourselves, or more so, to be at the mercy of someone other than ourselves, makes us feel vulnerable, even unsafe. Because in such places, we cannot deny our lack of control and power. And in such places, we are, can't help but be acutely aware of our own weaknesses. And yet, it is precisely in our most vulnerable positions where we discover that Jesus is already at least that's how Jesus described life with God in his final kingdom epiphany from last week, if you remember. The story he told at his end, so his disciples would know how to live between ends. A picture of the end enlightening our imagination of life with God between times. Beckoning us to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus where he is. In the least, in the lost, and in the ones who are in need. For as Jesus said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am... That's where my servant will be also. That was Jesus' invitation at the end of the Epiphanies. It's Jesus' invitation to us, even as we move into Lenten, the Lenten journey. And Lent, in many ways, is a season less focused on the revelation of the nature of Jesus, like the cycle of light that we just exited, and more so on finding ourselves where Jesus is already. His presence in our neediness and in the neediness of others. The habits and rhythms of the Lenten season are meant to help us find Jesus in the places and people where he found us. Whether in daily devotions, weekly fasts, or extended abstinence from things that distract us, 
The things we do during Lent are meant to help us be where Jesus is. And that is particularly true of the Psalms of Lent. The so-called penitential Psalms, of which Psalm 6 that Kyler just read is the first. They give us aid to step into our neediness and the neediness of others and in there find Jesus. Now we've talked to these seven Psalms of the Lent last year. We talked about how did the structure of these poetic prayers actually guide us into the depths of our hearts and into the heart of God for us and against all that takes life? The structure of each ancient prayer designed to move us deeper and deeper into the darkness within and without. And in there, in the darkest place, find there is and has always been something deeper than darkness. I encourage you over the coming weeks to use last year's gathering messages to help you enter into the Psalms during the week, to use them in the Lectio, because there is a way in which the psalmist, in their way of praying, in their way of, of writing their prayers, has given us a way to enter into the darkness and depth within us and with around us. And again, there in the depth, find there's something deeper. But this year, our times together will take a little different approach to the Psalms. While the psalms remain the same, it'll be the seven, same seven psalms that we looked at last year. Our gathered approach will have a different focus. But before we pray this psalm together, let me give you a quick word on the psalms themselves, a way of entering them that will tease out, that will tease out throughout this Lenten season, a way of looking at the psalms and a way of praying the psalms that I think will help us be ones who can actually um, be psalmists in our own prayers. The Psalms, in general, right, and I think we know this, are where God's people for millennia have gone to learn to pray. Whenever you, uh, whenever you want to know how to pray, the answer historically in our faith has been, pray the Psalms, go to the Psalms. This is where you learn to pray. It was said once that, uh, and not just once, but by many, um, um, that all the Psalms are wrapped up in Jesus's, um, uh, the, the prayer that Jesus gives us, the Lord's Prayer. That Jesus takes all the psalms, and within all the psalms are wrapped up everything that's in the psalms come out in his, in his abbreviated version of them. That he, like every Jew at the time, would have learned to pray by the psalms. That that's what taught him how to pray those things. And that's where we go, too, to find our way of praying. But it's interesting if we think about it, because in reality... If the Psalms are where we go to pray, then the Psalms, with a few exceptions, as one um, Psalm scholar notes, with few exceptions, are not the voice of God addressing us. We don't go to the Psalms to hear God talking to us. They are rather the voice of our own communal humanity, a voice that speaks about life the way it really is, in this anguished, joyous human pilgrimage. That doesn't mean we don't hear God in the Psalms, don't get me wrong, but the way they teach us is they teach us what to say how to speak. We get to join the voices of those who have voiced before God in generations before us and will by His grace in generations long after us. While giving voice to the highs and lows of our human experience is not necessarily a biblically exclusive exercise, the human voice heard in the Psalms is a voice uniquely resounding with a pers persuasive fluency, a passion and a boldness in addressing the Holy One the creator of the universe, the giver of life. What you won't find in the Psalms, in this address to the Holy One, at least not with any regularity, is that this voice is, is, is not very religious. That is, the Psalms are often not courteous or polite or deferential. Right? 
The Psalms seem to lack any of the, the, the pomp and circumstance that we might find in our traditional religious way of relating. They are religious only in that they are willing to articulate this complex chaos of our hu- common humanity to the very face of God himself, invariably calling God by name and expecting God to respond. The distinguished Old Testament professor Walter Brueggemann suggests that the shared experience of our humanity that comes to speech in the Psalms, in maybe a perhaps oversimplistic fashion scheme, is that our life of faith consists in moving with God in and out of three essential kind of peaks and valleys, three essential kind of flows of life. We move from being securely oriented, at equilibrium, at a place where everything seems to be working right, where we know everything right, we know everything well. Curiously enough, there's only a small handful of psalms that would, be, that would fit being uh, prayed from a securely oriented place. But then we move out of our orientation into being full, painfully disoriented, find ourselves knocked off balance, knocked off of, of what we thought we were or where we thought we were, sometimes expectantly, sometimes not expectantly, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And then moving from being painfully or disoriented to being surprisingly reoriented in something new. And it wouldn't surprise you, I don't think, to know that the majority of the Psalms take place in parts B and C. Majority of our Psalms that are, that are prayed, the majority of the, way, majority of the ways that we're taught to pray, are prayers that come from, again, maybe a, perhaps an oversimplification of classification, but from a place of disorientation or reorientation, a place of pain or a place of surprise. Brueggemann sees this flow of orientation and disorientation and reorientation, this movement in and out and back and forth through them, as an honest way to describe how we relate to ourselves. That sometimes we feel that we are really securely oriented in who we are. At times we feel super disoriented in who we are, right? Unsure of who we are and what we're supposed to do. And then surprisingly we are find ourselves back on track, back into something new, a new direction, a new purpose. He says you could even use this to describe how we relate to our significant others, our spouses, our friends, our neighbors, those that are closest to us. Often at times thinking we know them super well and our relationships equilibrium. Other times feeling that it's off and thrown out of whack, only to, to have something bring us back into something new beyond what it was before. It could also be a way to describe how we participate in our everyday roles and responsibilities, a way of articulating life's seasons. We're in a season of disorientation or reorientation, a season of equilibrium or something else. Or even identify moments of existential crisis. In a way, that's a, what a lot of the Psalms are. Who am I? Why am I? Who are you, God? How can this be? But Brueggemann contends, most of all, this simple schematic, this flow of A, B, and C, may provide us a way to think about the Psalms in relation to our common human experience in a way that we pray with and for one another. For each of God's children is in transit along the flow. That Right now, every one of us could describe themselves in one of three spots. At equilibrium, at disorientation, or in reorientation. That somehow, right now, every person in this room, every person that we know that's not in this room, is somewhere along this flow. In other words, recognizing that each psalm 
is giving voice from one or two of these peaks upon the wave. Sometimes the Psalms are beginning disorientation and move into reorientation, or beginning in equilibrium and oriented and move into disoriented and so forth. But if we recognize that each psalm is giving voice to one or two of these peaks upon the wave of life, the primary extremes, again, always disorientation and reorientation, pain and surprise, that allows us to both find ourselves in the psalm, we are praying, and find others there too. To read the psalms, to pray the psalms, not just for information, but to pray them in a way that allows us to find ourselves in the psalms and to find others there too. And in this way, praying the Psalms can cultivate prophetic, transformative empathy. Praying the Psalms can cultivate prophetic, transformative empathy. Not just words to repeat for repetition's sake, but words that transforms and changes. But the process itself is a transforming process. What we find when we come to the Psalms to learn to pray is an assurance that when we pray and worship, we are not expected to censor or deny the deepness of our human pilgrimage. The extremes of our disorientation or reorientation. In a season like Lent, it's what's especially true, we're not expected to censor or deny the depth of our neediness and vulnerability experienced at those extremes. Rather, contends Brueggemann, we are expected to submit our prayers openly and trustingly, so that they can be brought to persuasive and passionate speech addressed to the Holy One. That what we pray is prayer persuasive and passionate, true and fully, submitted and open to the Holy One, vulnerable. Thus our prayers can become, in some way, psalms too. If we are genuinely attentive to these linkages of speech and experience, to the candid expression in our pain and surprise, we will discover that we pray a prayer along with our brothers and sisters in very different circumstances. That right now, like in just a minute, we're going to pray Psalm 6 together. That in praying Psalm 6 together, you're going to pray it in a way that is the same as somebody else. Same words, right? We're going to read the same words. But yet, a little bit different. Others may give a different nuance to their speech but they also are living in the realities of disorientation and reorientation in their lives. And they are joining us in the resilient voice addressed to the Holy One. That together we pray the Psalms, even if we pray them a little bit differently. It actually brings us together. And not just those who pray it with us, but even those who aren't praying these Psalms, we get to pray for them. Just as by way of example, like the other, the other day I was praying Psalm 41, and Psalm 41 particularly as a psalm in which um, the psalmist is a, it's a disorienting psalm. There's reorientation in it, but it begins in the disorientation. Disorientation becomes from the pangs of life, the pain that's happening in life that's coming from dissolved relationships and identity. But one of the things that's dissolving in, this, in the psalmist's life at the time seems to be from wounds from those closest to him, from wounds the one that, that he thought he could trust. And as I'm praying that psalm, Certain people in my life, a couple people particularly, who have walked through those pains come to mind. Like, I'm thinking through, I didn't go into the psalm to pray for them, but in the psalm, began to pray for them. Began to pray with them. To pray for one of my friends who I know, like, it's been several years of feeling this pain. Feels like, it seems like, at least in the last conversation, that they 
they, they haven't stopped feeling that pain. That the wound is still as fresh as today as it was three years ago. And in that way, I get to pray with my friend in the psalm and to pray for my friend in the psalm. And that's what it looks like for us to pray the psalms. Not just to say the words, not just to give us an exact blueprint of what to say to God, but to teach us how to pray to God. And in doing so, connect us to all those who are praying with Him and all those whom we should be praying for. What Brueggemann, I think, is trying to help us do in this A, B, and C kind of flow is to learn how to pray like psalmist. That is, in his words, to bring the boldness of the psalms and the extremity of our experience together. To let them interact, play with each other, and illuminate each other. And that's what we're going to try to do together in our Lenten gatherings. To learn how to pray the psalms together. But rather than trying to explain it anymore and confuse us even further, let's just see if we can practice our, our rather pray with the psalmist together, okay? Listen, taking Brueggemann's scheme, Psalm 6 begins in disorientation. That's the way Psalm 6 would be labeled, right? The psalmist unmasks his heart with words more evocative than utilitarian. Language that brings strong images and memories or feelings to mind more than it reports on some specific detail. We cannot identify David's specific pain point in Psalm 6, but that's the point. The ambiguity of the particulars behind the words invites the universality within the prayer, allows us to enter into the prayer. The emotions are in near hyperbolic proportion, pour forth. Emotions we are all certainly have felt or are feeling, but would hardly be free enough to express them to our closest friend, much less God himself. And yet, there they are. These words, written and repeated for thousands of generations, so that your voice might join the voice of all God's children, past, present, and future. I mean, how uncomfortable was it for you to hear Kyler read, Please, God, no more yelling, no more trips to the woodshed. Treat me nice for a change. Is it uncomfortable to hear that? Awkward not because the words express something you've never thought, but precisely because they give voice to what you have truly felt, though perhaps never uttered. They evoke, that is, bring strong images, memories, or feelings to your mind. And in doing so, praying reveals the thoughts of your heart. And listen, if you didn't feel the rawness for yourself right now, if the words didn't bring to mind some particular image, memory, or feeling for yourself. Don't you think, as you hear the words of someone you know, haven't you seen in the decisions and attitudes of a friend, a coworker, a sibling, a spouse, or maybe on a Facebook post, the lived expression of this passionate and bold address to say, God, please stop yelling. No more trips to the woodshed. Treat me. Nice for a change? Haven't you felt in your spirit these words hidden under the efforts and entitlement of the faithful? Well, yeah, you have. I guarantee you, you have. But, it, but maybe the hurry of your schedule, the discomfort of the quiet, the distractions of the day, or the politeness of pious conviction 
You simply pushed past the linkage of speech and experience and just kept reading rather than praying. I know I have. I know that's my tendency. To read the words, to feel a twinge, something evoked, an image, a memory, a feeling for myself or for another, and then just to keep reading on and not praying. But Lent gives us a chance not to press past the images, memories, and feelings that come to mind. But to open ourselves up to actually praying, to being passionately vulnerable and boldly needy before God, and met with grace upon grace upon grace when we do. Again, we'll work out some of the hows and whys and whats of this way of entering the Psalms over the coming weeks. But right now, let's just pray. So I'm going to read the Psalm 6 once more with a brief commentary in hopes of helping us see the various speeches of disorientation and the surprise of reorientation so that we might be evoked into prayer. Then I'll invite you to enter into one part of the prayer yourself. Those sheets that you have are just Psalm 6. And if you'll notice, each paragraph's broken up and it has a little B in front of it for the disorientation because that was A, B, C, C for reorientation. It's just to help you. As in our quiet time, to kind of be able to enter back into it. But I'll invite you in just a minute to not withhold what images, memories, or feelings emerge, but candidly address them to God, who is here and who is for you. So let's just read Psalm 6 one more time. Again, I'll add just a couple of little sentences of note to each little section, and then give you some quiet space to be able to respond to God with whatever He brings to mind. So you do this for me, just close your eyes, take in a deep breath. Just ask the Holy Spirit in this moment to just to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. To see yourself in the psalm, a friend, a neighbor an enemy. And then listen to these words. Please, God, no more yelling, no more trips to the woodshed. Treat me nice for a change. I'm so sorry for affection. Can't you see I'm black and blue, beat up badly in bones and soul? God, how long will it take for you to let up? whether because of sin or circumstances, birth from unmet expectations, faithlessness, or hesitant living, there are times when we feel that God is against us. That we wrestle with God, and our hearts wonder when the agony of the wrestle will end, when the testing will be over, when the judgment will finally be rendered, when the hidden face will be revealed. Sometimes our disorientation begins not within ourselves or within those around us, but within one who spoke life. Break in, God, and break up this fight. If you love me at all, get me out of here. I'm no good to you, dead, am I? I can't sing in your choir if I'm buried in some tomb. Sometimes it doesn't feel like God that we're wrestling with, but with everything and everyone else. Whether physical or spiritual, 
in our relationships, in our emotions, in our identities, our fight in life feels all but over. A losing battle that feels like it will not end until we are ended. I'm tired of all this. So tired. My bed has been floating 40 days and 40 nights on the flood of my tears. My mattress is soaked, soggy with tears. The sockets of my eyes are black holes. Nearly blind, I squint and grope. And sometimes we find ourselves spent, done wrestling. Everything inside of us poured out and nothing left to give to the wrestle. Disorientation can be a wrestle with God, a wrestle with life, or giving up on wrestling altogether. But then, says the psalmist, get out of here, you devil's crew. At last God has heard my sobs. My requests have all been granted. My prayers are answered. Cowards, my enemies disappear. Disgraced, they turn tail and run. Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, the psalmist is somewhere new. Reorientation is always a bit of a surprise. Life new, like life itself, even if long anticipated, arrives at a time and manner that leaves us in awe of the miraculous. There is no bridge between disorientation and reorientation. There's simply an arrival, a revelation, a light in the darkness. You can look back up here just for a second. Before we enter into just a, a, a time for you to jump back into the psalm yourself, I just want to say this, and this will kind of set, I think, our tone for these times during, um, during Lent and our gather times. In Mark 9, 22 through 24, a man with a demon-possessed child stands before Jesus. You may be familiar with the story. The man who witnessed Jesus' disciples unable to do anything for his son but now Jesus is there, and so the man asks Jesus, i.e., he prays to Jesus. And he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That seems like a genuine enough request, right? Doesn't it seem like a genuine request to ask God, if you can do something, God, please do something for me. Have compassion on me. Change my situation. Free me from these things. Save my son. It's certainly a properly submissive prayer, right? If, if you will, if you will. God, I know you can, but if you will, if you can, if you're able, not demanding, very proper. But Jesus responds to the man this way. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. To which the possessed boy's father immediately cried out with tears. Immediately cried out with tears. Immediately his heart rended and was exposed. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Now that was a persuasive, honest, passionate, bold, and psalmic prayer. A prayer that came first by saying what seemed proper, but then let Jesus expose his heart. 
and in his exposure, pray what was true. That he did believe, and yet he didn't believe. So like the man in Mark's story, as you come to Jesus through Psalm 6 this afternoon, let its words and the word evoke. Expose images, memories, and feelings. And let your response be from a vulnerable and needy heart. A heart open to God right before you. Saying, all things are possible for the one who believes. So here's what we're going to do. In just a second, I'm going to pray for us and then release you into a few minutes, about seven minutes or so, six minutes or so. So not a super long this time, I'm sorry, but we'll go have a little more time in the weeks to come. To pray Psalm 6. So what I want you to do is just you in your sheets to take out one of the three lines. The first, to wrestle with God. The second, a wrestle in life. The third, done wrestling. Or the fourth, a place of reorientation. And just answer the question, where are you in the wrestle with God in life? And if it's not you that the image brings up, maybe it's a friend, a neighbor, a spouse, the rejected or the neglected, a coworker, a child, or even an enemy. If you don't, an image doesn't come to your mind immediately for you, a memory or a feeling, ask the Lord to give you one for somebody else. And then candidly pray what you feel. Candidly let your heart be open to God until you're ready to receive God's response. That's communion. So what we're going to do is a little bit different for communion, is that when you're ready in your time of prayer, when you feel like, hey, I'm, I'm at a place where I've been candid before the Lord and I'm ready for the Lord's response, just come and grab the communion elements. You'll make your way back to your seat. And then on this screen right back here, which I'll get the fun remote to do this, is just a prayer to pray. Pray the prayer and receive communion. If you start hearing Chaz play, Chaz and Chris play, that's your cue to say, hey, it's time for me to come get the communion elements and receive communion on my own before they lead us into worship and song. Okay? Any questions? Great. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have a few moments to pray to God. Father, again, we thank you for we thank you for leaving words of your children to teach us the words we need to address you. Words not fraught with all sorts of pomp and circumstance, all sorts of, of um, rules and regulations, all sorts of even refinement, but hearts of candidness. Candidness before you, a willingness to say things that we feel but maybe have never expressed. Lord, help us today and in the days to come to be ones who pray with the same sort of eloquence and passion and boldness that our forefathers and mothers have taught us. And as they, Father, Lord, may we be ones who receive from you, Father, Lord, so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. So much more of you. In your son's name.